I grew up in the Chicago suburbs. When it came to baseball, we were a Cubs family. I remember being in preschool and it was nap time, but the teacher quietly told me not to take a nap. And I was like, what do you mean? I'm, I'm four. This is what I do. But the reason was because my parents were picking me up to take me to a Cubs game. Every summer, my dad would take us to Wrigley Field to see a game. I had this Cubs hat when I was little. It was adorable. But Chicago had two baseball teams, the Cubs and the White Sox. And I don't know why my family was a Cubs family, but that's just what we were. When I found out another kid at school was a Sox fan, well, I, I just lost all respect for him. So fast forward a decade or so. The thing you need to know is that the Chicago Cubs haven't generally been very good. <laughs> like, they've been historically, famously not great. Sure, they've had their moments, but their World Series dry spell was n noticeable. And my dad had had enough. One day, after rooting for the Cubs his entire life, he announced that he was now a Sox fan. And like, I don't even really care about baseball myself, but even I knew you're not supposed to do that. But my dad said it was just more fun to be a Sox fan. Now, fast forward again, just a couple more years, and my dad is very much back on the Cubs train. Could it have anything to do with the Cubs winning the 2016 World Series? We'll just never know. Whether you're a Cubs fan or a Sox fan, in the end, means almost nothing. But these allegiances are still part of who we are, even in small ways. It stings when our team loses, and it feels great when they win. The team, the fans, the city, it becomes part of how we see ourselves. It's what we call our social identity. But these identities are more than sports fandom and playground cliques. They're also part of bigger societal forces that divide us. You're listening to Opinion Science, the show about our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. I'm Andy Luttrell, and this week I talked to Dr. Jay Van Bavel. Jay is an associate professor of psychology at New York University. He studies all sorts of things, neuroscience, morality, political cognition. But on this episode, we're talking social identity theory, it's a classic theory in social psychology that is as relevant as ever. Later this year, Jay and his colleague Dominic Packer are releasing a book on social identity theory called The Power of Us, Harnessing Our Shared Identities to Improve Performance, Increase Cooperation, and Promote Social Harmony. Since so much of our opinions about ourselves and the people around us are wrapped up in who we are and the groups that we belong to, I thought it was a good time to talk with Jay about the basics of social identity and what his own research reveals about why it's important to understand now more than ever. Uh, okay, so yeah, I wanted to just kind of talk to you about social identity theory uh, as a general thing that we could use as a way to, to teach the world about what that idea is all about. Um, and then if there's time, talk a little bit about the work that you've done and your lab has done uh, related to that. Um, so just to start, I guess the, the first question I had was you, you have a book on this coming out. Um, so I wondered where the impetus for that came from. Yeah, the funny thing about the book is it it's really about identity and social identity theory. Um, although it's a trade book, there's actually not a lot of trade books that have addressed that issue, which is so basic in the field of social psychology. 
so what we try to do, it's with my colleague uh, Dominic Packer, is take social identity theory and apply it to all kinds of issues that matter to people. So those extend from leadership, you know, how do leaders motivate groups of people and get them to all be on the same wavelength, um, to things like prejudice and discrimination, uh, economic decisions. So there's, uh, you know, a kind of a niche area of economics uh, where people look at identity and how that affects our uh, decisions on what to buy and what to wear. Uh, we also look at it in, obviously, in issues of like conformity and social influence. So what makes you go along or get along with others? And as, as well as the flip side of that, dissent. It turns out that social identity plays a big role in dissent. And this is where Dominic's research has really been uh, influential. He finds that people who are identified with the group, uh, surprisingly, are often the most willing to dissent because they care the most about the group when it's going wrong. Hmm. And so we talk uh, not only about the science of all these things and try to use like rich real world examples, but then try to give people tools to understand it in their own life. So whether you're like coaching your daughter's soccer team or you're uh, academic running a lab or a CEO, that you will have a better understanding of how to manage groups. Uh, because that lies at the heart of so many things that we do and that you can manage them in an effective way. So when people talk about social identity theory, they think about, you know, it's carving the world into us and them. And that intrinsically comes with all these bad things about groups, you know, like mob behavior, um, discrimination, uh, mistreatment of outgroup members. And what we try to point out is it doesn't necessarily uh, do that. So there's lots of cases where people can identify with an in-group and, and be compassionate and care about out-group members. Hmm. And, you know, in my mind, maybe the best example of that is like the Olympics, where everybody's national identity is like hyper salient. You're all dressed up in, you know, the, the colors of your country, waving the flag. You have like rabid fans cheering you on and everybody in your nation uh, watching. And at the same time, it's like if you've ever gone to Olympic Village, they're like these most harmonious place on earth. <laughs> in fact, uh, there's a, an issue with uh, STD transmission in the Olympic Village where all the athletes are if they hand out condoms to these people because um, they're all hooked. They're all like super athletic, attractive people, single, uh, all hooking up in the Olympic Village. So uh, that's like a really good case where you can have very strong uh, identities and still be engaging in a very positive, harmonious way with people from uh, other identity groups. Hmm. If we start right at the beginning and and just sort of outline what we mean by social identity, what does that actually mean? When, when psychologists say social identity, what does that refer to? Yeah. So the way most, I would say the average citizen thinks about identity, certainly in, in North America, is through an individual lens. That when, he, when I say I have an identity, it's, you know, my history, who I am, what my personality is, what my preferences are as an individual. What social identity uh, did, social identity approach and social identity theory did, was make us realize that that sense of identity is often ground in the groups that we belong to, especially in powerful ways that we might not appreciate and might be affecting our behavior in all kinds of unconscious ways. And so it's basically changing uh, the way we think about ourselves from uh, me to we. And when you have that social identity activated, so for example, I'm Canadian and I've been watching the World Junior Hockey Championship, which probably means almost nothing to anybody who listens to this <laughs> podcast, unless you're Canadian. And it's like this, this uh, tradition around Christmas and it's one of the most popular things Canadians watch during that period or really for the whole year on TV is their junior team, which is like underage players, underage 19, um, playing for this championship. And when I watch it and I see all these players in the red with the Maple Leafs on their jerseys and they play the national anthem after the game, I'm, I'm thinking about myself as a Canadian. You know, when I talk to you, 
that shifts. I might be thinking about myself as an academic or a social psychologist, or maybe, uh, you know, since we both came from Ohio State, uh, you know, I'm thinking about the national championship football game that's on, you know, in a few days. And, and that's the type of thing that like dominates that campus this time of year. And it's a very different identity. Um, but it, so I'm, I'm a fluid person. I'm a somewhat of a social chameleon, just like we all are. And that whichever person I'm interacting with or when I'm watching on TV or interacting, how I'm interacting with people on social media activates different types of uh, shared identities that I have with people and then I see myself in a different way and think in a different way and act in a different way. So then according to social identity theory, what are the implications of, of these identities and whichever ones happen to be salient at the moment? Yeah, so um, whatever happens to be salient at the moment shapes who we are as individuals, it shapes our sense of self. And then everything flows from that. So uh, there's a great quote from this uh, John Turner paper who is one of the founders of social identity theory. And he said that all cognition is social cognition, which is essentially saying that like the moment that you see yourself a certain way, it has this kind of cascading effect through all these systems of the brain. It shapes what memories come to mind. It shapes where we look. So where our visual attention goes, it shapes um, our feelings, our, our thoughts, our goals. And so it's one of these things I think is a very powerful influence no matter what area you, you are studying in psychology or the social sciences, you should be mindful that the impacts of identity seem to shape and tune uh, all kinds of aspects of our mental life. So as I understand it, as a bit of an outsider, um, is that the self, your, one's own self-esteem is really integral to how these identities operate and the goals that we have to sort of see our own groups positively. Is that in your view, because I know there's some debate around that, in your view, how important is self-esteem and to the extent that it is, what is the importance of that? Yeah, so according to the original work on social identity theory and the whole social identity approach, uh, one of the core reasons we identify with groups is because it makes us feel better about ourselves. We want to be part of distinctive, uh, positively distinctive groups, groups that are doing well in society. Um, you know, you don't want to often identify with low status groups. Uh, and in fact, people will shift how they identify to align with, you know, I, I have the flexibility, as I said, to identify as a Canadian, as an academic, as a dad, um, as an Ohio State alumnus. And that might shift depending on uh, what's going on in the world. So if Ohio State wins the national championship, I'm going to be posting about that. Uh, but there's great research from Ohio State that, that the students and fans there, after a game that they lose, disidentify with the team. They'll say, um, them, they don't, ref the, as the players lost, they didn't lose. Whereas when the, when the team wins, they say we won. And so we have a lot of flexibility in how we identify ourselves. And so that's one of the interesting things about it is we tend to do it strategically in ways that, that might make us feel good about ourselves. Now, the, the problem is that, that, that there's a lot of mixed research around that kind of self-esteem piece. Um, but there's lots of other research suggesting that self-esteem self might be, you know, a really small part of the puzzle when it comes to identity. Uh, the way I think of identity is it fills all kinds of goals. And so one goal that we might have is to understand what's going on in the world. And so you look to fellow in-group members for clues about how to behave and, and what's going on. And so it serves what's known as an epistemic function. It gives us, groups gives us knowledge. Um, groups also uh, help resolve uncertainty. So for in a period of uncertainty, 
um, certain groups are going to be very appealing, especially if they talk very clearly and have very strong worldviews. And this is one of the reasons why people are very attracted to um, extremist groups or uh, religious groups, because they often have very clear uh, senses of systems of meaning. So there's all kinds of um, needs. Another one that, that comes to my mind that, that was made famous by Marilyn Brewer was optimal distinctiveness. Groups um, fulfill our sense of belonging. So you belong to a group and that means that you have social connections to others, they support you. Um, and that's really a fundamental human need. You know, humans are very flimsy creatures and our evolutionarily ancestors would have died if they were left to fend on their own. We're not very fast or strong uh, like other predators. And so we survived by collaborating and cooperating. And so we're the, we're the ancestors, we've inherited that kind of mental set of systems that encourage us to connect with others. Um, but what Marilyn said is um, that's often in contrast with the need for distinctiveness. Um, so to be different from other people. And so what she said is the groups that tend to be the stickiest in terms of attracting people and making you feel a deep sense of identity are the ones that kind of optimize both needs. So the groups that fulfill a sense of belonging, but are also distinctive or different from other groups in the world. And so this is one of the reasons why, you know, people identify with groups that are counterculture. So you think of like punks or hipsters uh, or goths. If you talk, if you know, I drive the subway, I'm on the subway, if I see people all dressed that way and you ask them, why are you all dressed so weird? They'll say, you know, because we're, we're nonconformists. But then you step back and look at them, and they all seem to be conforming very closely to one another. And so what they found is an identity that's distinctive. Um, in our world, that comes from things like all the pressure right now, it's admissions time uh, for a lot of high school students, and they want to get into a high status university. And, and the more selective the university is, it allows them to claim a sense of distinctiveness, you know, and then if they get into a selective university, they can put that sticker on their car or their parents put the sticker on their car because they're kind of borrowing some of the prestige from the selective identity. And so the, one of the reasons that, that I think Americans uh, more than many other countries are obsessed with that is because we've designed very, you know, clear rankings of status hmm. and, and then we've attached distinctiveness to them. Hmm. What was Marilyn at OSU when you were there? Yeah, Marilyn was at OSU and, and I, I didn't really work with her because she was just winding down mm. uh, her career to retire, but she was one of my mentors. I, someone I went to her office a lot to get advice about how to think about my work and how to think about identity. And, and she was still absolutely brilliant. You know, she, every, all, every time at a, at a talk, I would be thinking about a question, developing it, and she would always, would come to her like <laughs> much faster than me. You know? It was like halfway there and she already had like the well-articulated uh, incisive thought on things. So she was, she was really amazing. I was curious because I know you primarily through the route of iterative reprocessing and Will Cunningham world. And so I'm just sort of curious for you, what was the road that took you to social identity? So it, it, my interest in it started uh, in groups and prejudice when my first job out of uh, undergrad in psychology was at an anti-racist organization in Northern Alberta and Canada. Hmm. And I would go into high schools and we did plays and stuff to try to draw out how discrimination and stereotypes and prejudice work. And I'd be in these kind of in-depth discussions with like grade 10 social studies students about all the types of bias that exist. And I would hear them, you know, constantly rationalizing and justifying and arguing for certain stereotypes. 
And that motivated me to uh, go back and do my PhD in intergroup relations. And so I went to Toronto, the University of Toronto, and I was originally working with Ken Dion. And we were looking at things like implicit bias and how that gets manifested in the way we interpret the outcomes for certain groups, you know, kind of like rationalizations of our, our prejudices. And uh, Will arrived and he was a brand new faculty member and I met him on his first day and, and I wanted to do a collaboration with him looking at how coalitions or group identities shape our implicit biases. And I pitched it to him. I was really anxious. We met for lunch and, and he's like, that's an awesome idea. Let's do that. And I had like three or four ideas to give him because I didn't think he would like the first few ideas, but he liked the first one. And so I started working with him. And then a few months later, my, very tragically, my advisor, Ken Dion, passed away. And so um, obviously it was really upsetting, but it also meant I was without an advisor. And so I shifted into Will's lab and he was really just focused on attitudes and evaluation. And so what I was able to do was combine my interests in groups and prejudice and implicit bias with his growing interest in kind of basic questions about the way the brain uh, allows us to make judgments, especially rapid judgments of uh, people or things or places. And so that was my entry point into attitudes work, implicit evaluation, uh, social neuroscience, because he was all using all these really cool new methods. And so it grounded my thinking about the way identity shapes things in kind of a more fundamental view of just how we judge anything as good or bad. Hmm. So the social, the, the social biases part was there from the beginning, it sounds like. Yeah, that was something I brought to grad school. Hmm. And so as you've probably, you know, after I left Will's lab and started as a professor at NYU, my work has more and more gone back towards mm -hmm. uh, social identity, morality, groups, politics, and less away from these basic foundational questions of attitudes and evaluation. So, you know, it's one of those things. Sometimes you, when, when we're trying to hire people, for example, we're trying to figure out how much is them and how much is their advisor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so you don't really know that until five or 10 years right. <laughs> uh, uh, hence. And so now you can probably look and see like what parts of me were like influenced by Will and what parts mm. were probably stuff I would have done, you know, on my own or with anybody. In terms of sort of basic social identity theory, in terms of how you can study it, right? We know that identities are loaded up with all sorts of baggage that has accumulated over many years. And so it's hard to be like, how much of this is about just the fact that you're part of that group versus other assumptions you already have baked in about that group? And I know you've used the minimal groups paradigm in a handful of, of cases. And so I wondered if you could just explain to people who've never heard of it what that style of study is and why it's useful. Yeah. So it, it starts for me if you take a real world example. So let's say you take something like um, racial bias and you see someone's, you know, engaging in racial preferences and like, let's say they're hiring decisions. So there's lots of potential reasons that might be. One is that they are, have been exposed to racial stereotypes their entire life. Um, the other is that they're trying to like reinforce existing hierarchies in society because they want to preserve the status quo or they have political allegiances or ideologies that motivate them to uh, engage in discrimination. Um, another element of discrimination is some part of it is often due to just their identity. Do they identify as a certain group and disidentify with another group? And so when you're studying something like racial bias, which I was interested in when I started uh, grad school and still am, you'd see all of these papers on uh, racial uh, discrimination, racism, racial bias, implicit racial bias, and you, it'd be often hard to tell what was driving this behavior. 
And so what the minimal groups uh, research allows us to do, and, and this was invented by Tajfel and his colleagues back in the early 70s, what, you, what they did and what I've tried to do a lot of is basically you can just flip a coin and, and turn any group of people into two subgroups. And what he found, and I think it was a remarkable surprise to him at the time, it still seems surprising to me, is once you flip a coin and create two groups in a classroom or at a, you know, a summer camp for kids or at a workforce, what it does is it creates a sense of us and them. And people automatically start to identify with their in-group. And, and what Tashfell found was that they will discriminate in favor of the in-group. They'll give more money to the in-group, uh, especially in ways that optimize the gains of the in-group relative to the out-group. So they really want to maximize the difference between the in-group and the out-group and in, in how they give money and resources. Uh, anybody who's ever played like pickup sports, I remember like, you know, if you go to like the local gym and play a game of pickup basketball and you just randomly choose two teams, mm -hmm you immediately start like cooperating with your in-group, trying to figure out who they are. And I've had this experience when I was a kid growing up. Like I had this one, one of my best friends, whenever we play pickup sports, if I was on the same team as him, we would just get along famously. If we were on the other teams, we were both pretty competitive and we would be at each other's throats <laughs> within like half an hour. And so it was that simple, that just that simple arbitrary act of being part of a group shifts, you know, this, it's almost like a, a, a switch is, is flipped in our brain and it, changes how we think of ourselves and, and members of our own group and the other group um, into kind of an us versus them mindset, especially if you're competing over a resource. And uh, that element can be studied in, in a very careful way in the lab. It can be carefully controlled. There's often no stereotypes involved. Um, the groups are different on like history or oppression. And you can see how much of, of the types of discrimination we observe in the world and in other labs is just driven by that, that root of bias, which is just this sense of us and them. And so I've done many studies and we found a lot of things that we see that look like they might be driven by stereotypes or other types of, you know, historical biases or, or ideology or the goals of oppression. A lot of it is really just driven by uh, this foundational element of identity, or you can at least reproduce the same effects by creating two arbitrary teams. Um, and so it's useful for scientifically to understand what's going on. Also, suggests ways to intervene, which is, can you build a common sense of identity? Um, you know, you can imagine like a science fiction movie, you know, like Independence Day where the aliens come and invade Earth. Would that be enough to get us all on the same page for a moment to rally together to fight off the aliens? And not only on the same page in, in say, America, but to cooperate with countries like Russia or China, who are normally, uh, you know, adversaries, you'd be cheering for them too, to help fend off the alien invasion. And so, the reason for that presumably is identity um, because you unlikely it's unlikely you've seen a lot of media coverage of, of aliens and their <laughs> characteristics and so forth. Um, it's not to say that things like stereotypes don't matter. They matter enormously in all kinds of domain. You know, his histories of oppression matter a great deal, you know, and many of, and those things often in many contexts matter more than identity. So what happens in the real world, unfortunately, is certain groups are victim to like three or four or five of these problems that, you know, you have white racial identity. So if you take white supremacy and white racial identity, you have history of oppression, you have systemic inequality, um, you have political ideology, all layer on one another in, in a way that can make the discrimination faced by certain groups incredibly, incredibly hostile and oppressive. And so what we try to do as scientists, of course, is figure out what's driving what, in which context and by, by whom. I had heard a story that when Toshville started the minimal group stuff, 
it began almost like you were saying it was a surprise. It began as like, let's understand all this, this fighting between groups. And we'll start where it obviously wouldn't happen, which is we strip everything away and just make groups. And then we'll just establish a baseline and go from there. And then even at that point, there, there was this conflict. Is that right? Is that is that kind of the impetus for that program of work? That's my understanding of it. Yeah. In, in many ways, the minimal groups are like one of the most interesting control conditions in the history of social science. <laughs> um, you know, we, as you know, as scientists, we're always trying to strip everything away, get rid of the stereotypes, the conflict, the resources, um, the history of uh, uh, between two groups. And you strip out all those things that you think are causing the conflict and you realize, wow, you can get discrimination with none of those things. That's remarkably surprising. And I think what he was hoping to do, my understanding is that he was going to get rid of all those things and slowly add them in one at a time to see what really drives group conflict and was surprised to find you actually don't need any of those other things to get like very serious discrimination. Um, I want to be mindful of your time. Just a, a last uh, question, just to to think to the future, like what is what is next for social identity? What are the kinds of things that you're doing in your work to sort of look at social identity in, in this new era? Yeah, I think that there's a lot. One of the great things about social identity, it was developed in the 70s. You know, the minimal group studies uh, are turning 50 years old this year. Hmm. And so it is one of those, uh, mo- you know, one of the most foundational insights and set of studies and launched this whole theoretical framework. And you might think, you know, maybe it's run its course by now. Um, but on the other hand, if anything, I think that identity theory is more, social identity theory is is more invigorated than ever. And so I'm now, you know, I'm Canadian, but I can't help studying American politics and polarization and partisanship and seeing how it shapes beliefs and all kinds of crazy nonsense things and conspiracy theories. And so I've been really drawn into the role of identity in that. And you see political scientists talking about social identity theory more and more and more. Liliana Mason has a great book, really just drawing social psychology and applying it to all these topics they study uh, in politics. The other types of things that are going on where you see identity playing a huge role is in social media. So now I think over 4 billion people are on social media and the average person I read the other day um, scrolls through 300 feet of social media newsfeed every day on TikTok or Twitter or Facebook. Um, So that's the height of the Statue of Liberty because every time you (laughs) swipe down, that's about five or six inches, do that 600 times during the day, you've essentially gone up the Statue of Liberty and, and what draws your attention? What triggers you to engage? How do you talk about yourself and present yourself? A lot of that behavior uh, our studies are finding uh, is driven by identity concerns. Um, and it can be incredibly polarizing, not just polarizing in a political sense, but I've seen it in, in scientists talking about like open science practices. We get polarized and you see people expressing their scientific preferences through the lens of their identity. Um, and, and I just keep on thinking like that's a risky and dangerous thing to do uh, because we know from, you know, a thousand other studies that, that framing it that way can, can backfire if it's not managed well. Um, so I think that it, ma- it happens there. And then I'll just say one other domain of technology where I think it matters a great deal is we've moved more and more towards um, machines and machine learning and data-driven approaches, but they end up affirming uh, differences based on identity. And so there's, you know, a, an emerging literature of all the ways that bias that was baked into training data sets gets recapitulated uh, in machine learning algorithms. So you might think, well, we can get by our human biases by just like creating these impartial programs. But if the impartial programs are A, drawing from a database where identity type information is 
unevenly distributed, you're going to reproduce that. Or, you know, you might have programmers who come from a one certain identity group and they're not thinking about the considerations of other stakeholders. And so you can get like selection in, in New York City into certain selective schools that's heavily slanted against certain groups. And so all of these types of identity play out in the domains of, of modern technology where we think we've stripped away human bias. And so I think having an understanding of how identity works there is going to be incredibly critical uh, for designing systems that are fair and equitable and, and also getting uh, people to see them as legitimate. Uh, because if people don't see these systems as legitimate, they won't engage with them. Or what you're seeing right now <laughs> is that a lot of Trump supporters have gone off mainstream social media and they're on things like Parler <laughs> or they watch Newsmax or OAN. These are like really far right conspiracy theory um, cesspools in some way. Um, <laughs> And identity affirming, right? They're identity affirming. They're like cognitive dissonance reduction machines, but they have the quality of information they're getting is incredibly low. It's leading to increased conflict. It's thrown the entire democracy in, into uh, jeopardy. And so you, if you don't understand identity and, and just assume that it's not going to be an issue, you'll get all these problematic consequences, I think, in identity groups and in, in society. So uh, understanding and managing identity in a healthy way is something that people need to be proactive about. Well, let's cross our fingers and hope that the, the science gives way to, to those new interventions. Jay, thanks so much for taking the time to talk about this stuff. I appreciate it. Thanks, Andy. And thanks for putting this together. I really appreciate you know all the work that you do with your blog and creating these videos and the podcast uh, to make this work accessible for such a big, broad audience. It's really a major contribution to the field. Cool. Thank you. All right, that'll do it for this episode of Opinion Science. Big thank you to Jay Van Bavel for carving some time out of his busy schedule to talk with me. To learn more about Jay and his research, check out the show notes for a link to his lab's website and links to the topics that we covered. Also, I first reached out to Jay because I was working on a YouTube video that gives an accessible overview of social identity theory. As I record this, I'm not sure if that video has already come out or is about to, so you can just check out my YouTube channel or follow me on social media for updates. Hey, speaking of following me on social media, why don't you follow the podcast on all the things? First, subscribe, obviously. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, RSS, wherever you get podcasts, we're there. Then follow at OpinionSciPod on Twitter or like it on Facebook. Then tell the world. <laughs> Rate and review the show, email a link to your uncle, any way you get the word out sounds great to me. Okay, that's all for this time. A bit short and sweet this week, but I'll be back in a couple weeks for more Opinion Science. Bye-bye. <laughs>